So we're going to be in James. If you want to turn to James as you're doing that, um, uh, I will make mention of the fact for those of you watching in the, uh, in the conference center that there are plenty of seats here in the chapel. Um, at, at the 830 service, it's even more sparse in the chapel than this 1030 service. Um, and I went over to the conference center after getting done preaching here, just went over there. They're on a delay, and so I could watch myself preach. And it was, it was packed out over there in the conference center and, and sparse in here. And I don't get that because I'm way better live. Uh, <laughs> Tom may not be. I'm not sure. Um, but I am way better live than on video. So those of you in the conference center... Uh, you're welcome. There are seats over here. It's the same worship, but it's way better. We give out more blessings, and, and, and uh, there's more grace over here. So I um, encourage you to join us over here. Um, I want to recap. In fact, if you, uh, if you need a Bible, that's what those guys were doing, handing out Bibles. You guys are very generous here, and I always forget that. Um, so if you need a Bible, they, are, they will give you a Bible to slip up your hand. Um, we are continuing in, in our study in the book of James, so if you'll turn there. Uh, we are still in James chapter 1, and we will be for another week. Um, we're going to do verses 13 through 18 this week. And what we're really doing is wrapping up a little mini-series within uh, the, the greater book of James on trials. Um, James, for most of chapter 1, deals with these trials. And so what I want to do, since I have not been with you the last couple of weeks, I want to recap um, where we've been for those of you who weren't here, um, those of you who might be new, um, and then clear up any confusion Tom may have created um, in your minds <laughs> the last couple of weeks. He can be um, a little vague and confusing at times. And so I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here, okay? While he's a long ways away and can't hear me, all right? So James starts this, this epistle, um, which was one of the first epistles, if not the first epistle written, um, and he starts it, aside from the initial greeting, with one of the most difficult commands, imperatives, um, that we see in all of the scriptures. And it, and it seems like kind of a strange way to start this epistle, because epistles usually don't get easier, they get harder, right? You, they, you kind of, Paul kind of works into it, and by the end is real angry. Uh, James seems to be angry at the outset, and says, um, in verse 2, says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is incredibly difficult. And, and not an easy way to start um, this letter. That he says, when you are in the midst of trials, and, and everybody knows trials, right? The, this, is, this is the worst news that comes out of this book is that everybody in the world either is just coming out of a trial, is currently in one, or is about to come into one, right? Trials are a part of our life. And so what James says is he writes to um, these dispersed Jewish Christians that are outside of Jerusalem all throughout the region. He says, when you're in the midst of those trials, to actually consider them joy. Now, th this is not what would be a lot easier, which is to, um, in retrospect, look back on trials and say, oh, th that was okay, because I see what those trials ultimately produced, right? We can all do that. We get a year, two years um, past a trial, and we can kind of look back and see the silver lining, see what happened. Some of the things that in my life seemed so overwhelming at the moment, I now will look back and go, I wouldn't trade it for the world, right? And we, we can probably all say that. But that doesn't seem to be what James is saying here. He, he's saying not, not retroactively, not retrospectively should we consider it joy, but in fact, when we are in the midst of those trials, 
We, we should be able to um, experience joy or rejoice even when we're experiencing significant pain and loss, sadness, disease, death. That, that we should actually be able to consider it joy, which is just incredibly difficult to do. Right? I mean, when we are in, in the midst of trials, it, it feels very overwhelming. Trials feel like um, they, they are the only thing happening in the world. I, I don't know about you, but when, when I'm in the midst of some pain or some struggle, it, it feels very claustrophobic. It feels like that's the only thing happening in the universe, and I'm just surrounded by this pain, surrounded by this trial, and, and it seems like um, everything and everybody should understand and know what's going on in my life at this time. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It just feels like it's, it's all around you. And so the idea that, that we could, in the midst of that trial, actually rejoice and go, you know, I, I can stare cancer in the face, I can stare death in the face, I can, I can stare loss of job, loss of relationship right in the face and rejoice in it, there had better be a good reason for that. And this is what James says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, we can rejoice in the midst of trials because those trials produce a steadfastness in our lives that eventually produces a, a, a kind of perfection, completion, a lack of nothing. Essentially, what James is saying here, as, as we unpacked it two weeks ago, is that God, through trials, can perfectly suit us for his purposes. That, that word for perfection is teleos, and it's not some idealized nirvana or perfection, but it's something that is perfectly suited for a purpose, right? So um, a, a, a screwdriver is nobody's idea of ultimate perfection, right? But there is nothing better suited to put a screw into the wall. Nothing. Right? Except a, a, a drill. But that's beside the point, right? So that, that is, that is the, the perfectly suited tool for, for that end. And, and this is what James is getting at. That, that these trials, if we can actually consider them joy, respond correctly, move through them, it'll produce in us a steadfastness that will shape us and hone us and perfect us for God's purposes. And what's God's purpose for us? To know him? To delight in him? to rejoice in him, to enjoy God forever, to know God and enjoy him forever, right? This is, this is what God has created humanity for. And so essentially the line, the very straight line that James draws here is we should rejoice in the midst of pain and struggle because if we respond rightly, God will produce in us a greater ability to know him and rejoice in him. Therefore, the only way we could possibly stare cancer in the face as it is all around us and claustrophobic all around us, surrounding us, the only way we could look through that and go, no, I'm going to rejoice because this knowing God, loving God, experiencing God thing will result is if that is what is most ultimate. That we can really look cancer in the face and go, I I can face you down. In fact, not only can I just weather this storm, but I can rejoice in the midst of it because I know God's drawing me towards him and that is the most ultimate thing in the universe. But we have, that assumption has to be there. If, if we don't believe that knowing, loving, experiencing God is the most ultimate thing in the universe, then it will be trumped over and over and over 
by sickness, disease, death, and loss. And we will not be able to rejoice in it. James clearly understood this by calling himself in that, in that second verse, that first verse, calling himself a doulos, a servant, a willing slave of God. James identifies himself that way. Even though he's a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, he's the brother of Jesus, he's a writer of one of the first epistles, he identifies himself as a slave of God. Because he knows that there is nothing greater, no master that he could choose greater, more generous, more loving than that of God. And so he goes, I I can rejoice in the midst of trial, and so can you, because I know that trials make us better able to love God, know God, experience God, and there's nothing better than that. There's nothing more important than that. Okay, so he kind of draws this line. Now, that, that, that sounds much easier than it actually is. Right? There, we, there has to be a tool, there has to be a means by which we can actually, when we're in the midst of that pain, go, I'm rejoicing, right? And, and James lays that out in verses 5 through 12. He talks about the, the wisdom of God, this, this perspective on this trial that we can have, that God gives us, the ability to kind of raise our sights above the fray a bit, see what God is doing in eternity, how God is shaping us, and, and what the greater good is that, that God is doing in our midst um, during this time of trial. That, that's, what, that's what we see. That's what, that's what God promises. And James says this beautiful thing about God. He says that if you lack the wisdom to be able to see this, to have the right perspective on it, if you lack that wisdom, all you got to do is ask God. God will give it to you. He says he'll give it to you generously and he'll give it to you without reproach. Meaning God won't keep tabs of how many times you've had to ask him for wisdom means that, that God is not secretly writing down, well, it's the 14th time he's asked for wisdom. He's kind of dumb, right? Like, God's not doing that. God's not giving out the wisdom, but kind of reminding us, hey, remember, I'm going to give you this wisdom, but remember all that sinning you were doing. Don't forget the sinning. I'm, I'm really generous because I'm still giving you wisdom. God doesn't do that. God gives generously and without reproach because, and this may be the most important thing we can get out of this, God is for us. God loves us. God wants us to to reach God's ends for us. God wants to give us all the grace and all the the Holy Spirit and everything that we need to accomplish his purposes for us. This is incredibly important for us to understand. And James is going to hit it home again this week. Some of us think that that God is kind of against us. or, Or maybe at best passive and just waiting for us to sin, that he's hiding kind of a a big hammer behind his back, just waiting for us to sin so he can drop the hammer on us and give us those consequences. What James characterizes for us uh, about God is that he loves us. He is for us. He wants to see us succeed in his ends for us. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that because that's who God is. James describes him as a generous and good God who works on our behalf to form in us, to shape in us God's ends for us, which are always the best ends. Okay, and so all of that kind of leads up to what we're looking at today in verses 13 through 18. Essentially, James said, here's the deal. Count it all joy. It produces steadfastness. It produces an ability to know God, love God, experience God better. And he says, if you don't, this is how you can respond rightly. Get wisdom, have the right perspective. Question is, what happens if we don't 
What happens if we don't have the wisdom? We don't ask God for wisdom. What happens if in the midst of trial, we respond badly? This is what James addresses in verses 13 through 18. He says, let no one say, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, what's interesting about this sentence that we need to get it before we even talk about what the sentence means is the words that are actually there. This word tempted that James chooses to use is the exact same Greek root word as we see trials in verse 2. Perazzo. It's the same word. So what, what James says in verse 2, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet perazzo of various kinds, he now in verse 13 says, let no one say when he is perazzo, tempted. So the same word, the same event, the same thing can either be a trial, a, a test to refine us and draw us closer and make us stronger, or it can be a temptation that draws us away from God and draws us towards sin. Same word, same word, different context, different ends, radically different ends. So one of the things we, we need to get is these, these hardships, these trials that, that we're talking about so much, they, that event in and of itself is relatively benign, right? It, it, it's painful and it's, and it's hurtful and it is certainly a product of the fall. There's no question about that. But whether or not this moment in our lives draws us towards God and better prepares us for his ends, or it draws us away from God and tempts us towards sin, is entirely up to the way in which we respond to that moment. James' point here is, when that moment draws you towards sin, when that event causes in you sin, he goes, don't blame God for that sin. So apparently what was happening is these, the people that were hearing this, this letter that he's writing to were experiencing these trials and these hardships in their lives. We talked about this in week one, what that could have been. We've got a displaced people far away from their home as a minority population struggling financially, struggling with authority and power in these, in these foreign places. He says, apparently... These people have, have used these opportunities and, and have been drawn into sin, drawn away from God, have been tempted to rely upon um, themselves, rely upon their money, rely upon their relationships, um, to turn their back on God, to shake their fists at God. Maybe they've responded to trial with anger. They've responded to trial with fear. Whatever it is, they have then not only just fallen into sin as a result of this trial, not allowed God to use it to perfect them, but now they're in fact blaming God for their sin. So they're saying really ridiculous things like, well, I wouldn't have sinned if God hadn't allowed this trial to come into my life. I would never find myself here in the middle of this sin if God hasn't caused this hardship, allowed this pain to happen to me. So in the end, it's actually God's fault. This is nothing new. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden. After Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, starting in verse 9, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? One of my favorite questions in the Bible. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This takes a lot of guts on Adam's part. A lot of stupidity, but also a lot of guts. I got to give him credit for that. So he eats of the fruit, Adam and Eve, the one tree that God told him and, and Eve not to eat from. They eat from it. God shows up and goes, why are you hiding from me? Adam goes, I'm naked. God goes, you've been naked a long time. How did you just figure this one out, right? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Because the woman. Immediately. Not, not even, well, let's talk. Here's the, here's the thing. There was a serpent. No, just immediately. The woman, right? And then he gets even more gutsy. He goes, the woman who, by the way, God, you gave me. <laughs> Thanks for that one, right? I mean, that takes a significant amount of guts to not just blame, immediately blame the woman, but then also blame God for giving him the woman. And Eve is no better. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Both Adam and Eve had an opportunity to, to just be responsible for their own sin to own up to what they had done. They had disobeyed God's very clear, direct order. And yet both of them very quickly cast blame in another direction. The woman, the serpent, you, God, you are to blame, not me. This is really gutsy. This is exactly what James was doing. It's exactly what we do all the time. We live in a very blame-oriented society. It is never our fault that we lost our job. It's never our fault that we lost our home. It's never our fault that we have committed adultery. It's never our fault that we are in the financial situation we find ourselves in. It's not our fault for anything, it seems. We live in a culture that likes to blame the government, likes to blame our upbringing, our environment, likes to blame the Democrats, likes to blame the Republicans. We like to blame a lot of other people, and we do not like to keep the blame on ourselves. This is not an old problem, nor is it a problem that has gone away. And James is talking very clearly to these people who in the midst of trial have been drawn into sin and are blaming God for it, which it just seems ridiculous. So how can, if God does cause these trials to come into our life, if God at least allows them to come into our life, I mean, I think of Abraham and Isaac. God coming to Abraham and saying, I need you to sacrifice your firstborn son. I don't have a firstborn son, but I do have a daughter. And if God appeared to me and said, I need you to sacrifice Lily as a testimony to your, your faith in me, your trust in me, I'd have questions. We would need to discuss this. I would be tempted, significantly tempted, to protect my daughter and to disobey God, to, to run away, to hide from him, to not obey him because I love my daughter a great deal. And in the midst of that, if I ran away and tried to protect my daughter to be a father in that moment and in so doing reject God, rebel against God, ultimately sin against God... It would be 
also a temptation for me to blame God. Go, God, listen, you put me in an impossible situation. How could I do this? You asked an impossible thing of me. But James is really clear. We can't blame God. So if we can't blame God, who can we blame? He answers in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, we start to see it here in verse 14. We'll see it even more in 15 and 16. But James talks about this desire that, that lures and entices. He talks about this desire as almost something that is, that is foreign from us, that, that is something, kind of a third-party object that lives within us that is trying to entice us and pull us away from God, to lure us away from God. But, but it's not really us, it's something that's in us. I mean, it, it sounds a lot like um, Paul in Romans chapter 7, who in easily the most confusing paragraph in the New Testament says, for we know that the law is spiritual, Romans seven fourteen. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Did you catch all that? <laughs> Paul goes, listen, th there, is this, there is this thing within me. There is this flesh. There is this desire. There is this sin that lives within me that is at war with my soul. He goes, I, there's these moments when I, can, when I can concentrate, when I think, when I know that I want to pursue God, I want to love God, I want to pursue him and go after him. I want to do what is right. I want to believe the gospel. I want to believe that the path laid out by Christ is the path to walk. But then there's something in me, this desire that pulls me the other way. It lures me. It entices me to, to go. There's this, there's this literal civil war in our hearts. That, that we are fighting against ourselves. So James and Paul talk about this thing the same way. Ultimately, that the problem is not out there. Ultimately, the problem is here. So if desire is what's at fault, not God, clearly, but desire, this desire that lives within us, is at fault. This sin that lives within us is at fault. That implies that some other things aren't at fault. Namely, people around us. The world around us. Even, to some extent, Satan. That there is, there is nothing out there that we can blame our sin on. That ultimately the sin comes from within. So our, our normal solutions to our sin problem is um, to separate ourselves from the world, to push away things that would hurt us, to insulate ourselves from all those things that we blame sin on. 
when all we've done, according to James and Paul, is to isolate ourselves with the thing that's trying to kill us. And oftentimes we've pushed away everything that could help. Now, um, do other people and the world and Satan um, trigger those desires in us? Yeah, certainly. That there are things that we see or we hear, we experience that just kind of, they pluck at the strings of that desire. They just, they just kind of go, hey, remember, remember that's here. They entice us, they trigger it. But in the end, the, the problem's here. So if our solutions are out there, we're dealing only with symptoms and never actually dealing with the disease, which is in here. This is where the problem is that desire that's within us, the sin that's within us. So that's what James says. That's what, that's what Paul says. It's the sin that lives within us. We cannot blame God. We cannot blame Satan. We cannot blame the world. We cannot blame people. Ultimately, do they play a part? Absolutely, but only insofar as they trigger what's going on here in our hearts. Okay, now, he also says that that desire lures us and entices us, which means that this desire is not passive. It's not something that just kind of sits within us and, and waits to be triggered by some exterior thing, that it's actually plotting our demise, that it's luring us and enticing us. I said at the 830 that um, this, this kind of fishing metaphor illustration would be super helpful if I'd ever been fishing before that I'm sure I could come up with something really good to illustrate this. And then um, at the end of the 8.30 service, a guy came up and he goes, let me tell you this about fishing. And I was like, great. I told him I'm going to steal this and I'm not going to give you credit. Okay, so um, <laughs> he, he said that fish have about a four-second attention span. Okay, sound familiar? <laughs> four-second attention span. And so when you're fishing, you're essentially trying to capture their attention. So they see kind of a bright, shiny thing, and they swim after it, right? And all the other guys swim after it too. And, and they, they see, perhaps, um, Charlie get there first and get hooked by it and pulled up out of the water. And so with that four-second attention span, they go, ooh, something shiny. Ooh, Charlie got there. Hey, where's Charlie? What, what happened to Charlie? Right? So that, that's essentially what's happening here. Is, is, is we go, ooh, something shiny. Our heart entices us, lures us to something that we think is really neat and, and worth pursuing. Neat? Is really nice that we want to pursue. And our heart goes, ooh, something shiny. And we get there, and maybe we get there first instead of Charlie, and we experience the pain, we experience the suffering, and then we forget. Because our attention span is only slightly longer than four seconds our memory is only slightly longer. And so we are enticed by our desires. We, we have a shiny thing put in front of us, some, some creation of God that we then value more than the God who created it. And we say, no, this is the answer. This is what we need. This is what I want. And then we experience it. It breaks us in some significant way. It fails us in some significant way. And then we forget and we do it again. Maybe it's a different shiny thing. Maybe it's the same shiny thing over and over and over and over. Maybe we fail to realize the same lie we're being told over and over and over and over. And we are being lured and 
being enticed by this desire, showing us over and over, hey, this is better. This is more. You should want this. Value this more than God. Choose this over God's way. Choose, choose this path over God's path. This path is easier. This path leads to greater prosperity. This, and it's just a, it's this little shiny thing dangling in front of us. And we forgot that the last time we walked down that road, we fell into a hole. And we forget. And yet that desire is just enticing us and luring us until one day it's not a hole, it's a cliff. And that's what James gets to in verse 15. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That temptation is, is always happening. In, fine, in fact, um, one Bible commentator said it this way, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. In fact, I have found um, just the opposite of that expectation would be true, that as I grow closer to God, temptation grows stronger, that Satan is more aggressive, that my flesh, my desires, the world around me seems to be tempting me more and more and more. As, as, as I drift away from God, my experience has been in those moments where I'm not close to God, I don't sense that temptation. It's almost as if Satan doesn't want to remind me of how far away from God I am. But as I'm pressing into God and, and as I'm, I'm dialed in and it's just, it just makes sense and I'm feeling extra spiritual and it's just I'm feeling the presence of God and being led by the Spirit and rejecting sin, that's when I experience temptation all the more. Because Satan sees that he's losing ground, and so he's triggering that desire. He sees that I'm moving towards God and not away from God, and so he goes on the attack. So it's not that temptation goes away as we grow more mature. It's that the temptation conceives, as James puts it, less often. And that seems to be the key. It says that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, temptation is ongoing. You, you are being enticed and lured and tempted even now. Maybe something on your way in today, maybe something I've said, maybe something I'm wearing, maybe something I'm not wearing. Something, something about what someone's sitting around you, um, your, your desires are enticing you to sin. They're enticing you, luring you away from God, trying to distract you from hearing from the word of God, trying to create reasons in your mind why what I'm saying doesn't make any sense and why you shouldn't believe it and why it's not your fault that you're in sin right now. You're being lured and enticed now. Conception of sin takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a product of a hundred moments collaborating together. I say this often, nobody wakes up addicted to crack. That, that doesn't happen overnight. Nobody, nobody wakes up with a woman or a man they've never met before. No, nobody commits massive fraud after never having done anything illegal in the past. Those major moments... Waking up addicted to a substance, waking up in an adulterous relationship, waking up having committed fraud in your company. 
That, that happens as a result of years and years of little decisions building up and building up and building up until finally that temptation conceives and gives birth to sin. At first, it's opening yourself up emotionally to someone who's not your spouse. It's, it's being dishonest in one business deal that, that nets you a big financial gain, and you think, well, that was good. It's one substance that leads to another substance that leads to another substance. It's one relationship that leads to another relationship that leads to a situation, an opportunity, where temptation and opportunity, plus getting your eyes off the gospel, believing something about God that isn't true, believing something about the world that isn't true, results in that conception. Believing that that end will lead you towards joy and satisfaction. It may seem dramatic to make it a gospel issue, but it is in fact a gospel issue. Every moment that, that we choose to, to take a step away from God and, and not a step towards God, every one of these moments, uh, and we can call them trials. Some of them don't feel like trials. They just seem like normal moments in our lives, but they're tests. They're moments where we can either choose to pursue God, believe the promises of God, believe that the gospel is true, that God is a good God, a loving God, a creator who's given us things to draw him closer to himself, or there are moments where we can fundamentally disbelieve the gospel and believe that something God created should be valued more than God who created. Moments when we believe that this path that, that leads us away from God will actually bring us greater satisfaction than the path towards God. It's a fundamental disbelief in the gospel. James brings this issue into the heart as the problem, the desire lies here, therefore the solution too is here. It's not a get these people out of your life, it's not an avoid this situation, though, though those are triggers. Again, it's ultimately we have to deal with what's here. Paul did this in Galatians chapter 2 with Peter. Peter had been hanging out with Gentiles, believing Gentiles, but Gentiles nonetheless, which was kind of frowned upon by certain Jewish Christians. And when those Jewish Christians came to Jerusalem to be with Peter, he withdrew from the Gentiles to try to give the appearance that he wasn't doing something that those Jews didn't want him to do, and Paul didn't like it. Galatians 2.11 says this, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was being a hypocrite. He was doing one thing in front of one group of people and then doing another in front of a different group of people. He was being a hypocrite and drew Barnabas into his sin. But instead of Paul coming into Antioch, seeing Peter and saying, hey, you're being a hypocrite. Stop being a hypocrite. You need to, you need to start acting better. You, you broke the hypocrisy rule. He said, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. 
You're not believing and living in the belief of the gospel. That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are disbelieving that Christ came once and for all to cover sins for all who believe. That disbelief in the gospel is resulting in you acting hypocritically, but at the end of the day, it's a disbelief in the gospel. Same is true here. When, when we, in the midst of these trials, default towards sin, that we blame God, we blame others, we, we rest in something other than God to get us through these trials, we're, we're disbelieving the gospel. We, we disbelieve the, the very truth that God is good, that God is generous, that God is for us, that God, our Father, is the only one whom we should turn to in times of trial, the only one who can walk with us through those moments. We disbelieve it. We believe something he created is better equipped to help us than he who created. That gets to the heart. Because the only thing that can break that cycle of, of temptation, conceiving, giving birth to sin when fully grown, killing us, the only thing that can break that cycle is repentance and belief in the gospel. The problem is here, therefore the solution too, must be here. Then verse 16 serves as kind of a hinge for the rest of this chapter. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Begs the question, what is the lie? The lie that they were believing is that God isn't good. The lie is that you aren't responsible for your sin. The lie is that your circumstances or some other person is responsible for your sin. The lie is that you aren't to blame. The lie is that you shouldn't own up to and repent of your sin. The lie is that God isn't good and won't forgive you of your sin. The lie is a created thing is more trustworthy than the creator. That's the lie we buy into. We buy the lie that something God created can give us more joy than God himself. And it tempts us away towards sin. It tempts us to, to follow those things, those shiny things that hurt us every time, but we forget. And then James gives us good news. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, that, that term, Father of lights, is, a, is an ancient Jewish term that remembers God as the creator, the God who created all things, gives us every good gift, every perfect gift, every, everything that you count as a blessing in your life comes from God. Every relationship that you value, the job that you have, the roof over your head, every blessing that you celebrate is from God. It's given to you as a gift from a father to a child because he loves you, because he's generous, because he's for you, because he wants to see you walk in the path that he has set before you. This, this is the kind of promise of good news that James wants us to hear, wants us to understand, so that in those moments when we're tempted, we're always, we're always tempted positively, right? 
When those temptations come, those, those shiny, sparkly things come, the temptation is always positive. It's always, this is better. This is good. This will help you. This will bring you joy. This will bring you satisfaction. This will make you powerful or wealthy. The temptation is always positive. And so James goes, listen, all of those things, every one of those good things you're tempted with, God created them. Everything that you are tempted to, to be more valuable, to think of as more valuable than God, was created by God. God has given you all these things. So, so skip the middleman. Don't worship the created. Worship the creator. And the greatest gift of all that God has given us, verse 18, of his own will, God himself brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures in spite of the fact that our heart's desire is evil, that our heart's desire is to draw us away from God. God's desire is to draw us to himself always, always. God never tempts us to sin because God never wants us to sin. Therefore, God, God could never bring a temptation into our lives that he wants to see result in sin. Never. Because God is always drawing us towards himself, always bringing things into our life that will result, can result, in us being nearer to him, to loving him better, to knowing him more, to experiencing him more fully. God always wants us nearer to himself. The greatest gift that he has given us is that God, of his own will, by his grace, has saved us, made us his own, set us up as a kind of first fruits, the, the shining example of his creation, the greatest and truest, the apex of what he has done. God has made in us what he desires to make in his creation, that we would be shaped like he wants us to be shaped, that we would know him and love him and have relationship with him. I'll finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm pretty sure I've used a C.S. Lewis quote every week I've been here. And that's not going to change. I've actually used this quote about a hundred times in Tempe and Arcadia. But since it's the first time I've done it here, it seems new. From the weight of glory, Lewis says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let us not be content with the petty and small things, the shiny things that this world promises are better and more beautiful than God himself. And let us, especially in times of trial, fall back into the arms of our eternal, good, generous Savior who is for us and for our good. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you are good. 
There may be no simpler nor more profound promise that we can believe. That fundamentally, at the end of the day, when all else is said and done, no matter what might come our way, prosperity or poverty, you are for us. You are shaping us and molding us into being exactly what you want us to be. Preparing us for an eternity with you. Preparing us to love you and to be loved by you. Shaping us so that we can have the most satisfying relationships with one another and with you. God, I pray that you would convince our hearts and convince our minds that no matter, no matter what shiny things this world may put before our eyes, that we may be sure that there is nothing more glorious than you. And when we are tempted to respond in sin, when we are tempted to turn our back on you and value other things more highly than you, I pray that we would remember that you are the creator, you are the sustainer, you have given us every good and perfect gift. In your name we pray, amen.